I love you, but you should have stayed Philippians today. <laughs> I told him he was rushing through Philippians. Uh, and what he didn't tell you, the Lord changed the message three times this week on me. Three times. I've never had that happen. And, uh, of course, Elder Tony sort of first mixed it up. He sent me a, a, a link to uh, Pastor Charlie Dates' message in James 1, 26 to 27 last week. So on Sunday afternoon, Elder Tony, I was listening to that message, and I went right to my knees in repentance of the hypocrisy hypocrisy. Uh, I mean, it was an indictment if you read James at all. And so I was, I, I was about to, you know, I, I had originally planned to preach on the entire book of Galatians today. I, I still have it. I'll preach sometime. And then last Sunday, the Lord changed. Well, it wasn't the Lord. It was me after listening to Charlie Dates' message in James 1, 26, 27. I said, social justice that's the moment right now. So I started getting, uh, getting ready because I had already preached James 1 to 3 here. So I say, Lord, I'll just finish the message, James 4 and 5, which is all about worldliness and social justice in an unjust world. So as I started doing that, the Lord just said, you are not the spokesperson on this issue. Busted. Uh, went back to the drawing board. I said, okay, so uh, if that's not the message, Lord. You got to give me one because I don't have one. Uh, all the way to Wednesday, I didn't have a message. <laughs> this is how preaching works. All the way to Wednesday, I said, Lord, I got to get on that prayer line. And I'm going to tell you this. Those of you who are on the prayer line Tuesday through Friday, and you know who you are, Something is happening. Something is happening like that mustard seed that the Mallows shared about. Something is happening during those prayer times that you cannot possibly see, but I'm going to help you see it through this passage today. It's going to explode at some point, okay? So uh, it was during this Wednesday prayer time that Pastor Mark as he uh, started out the prayer time, he said, we need, we need to pray. We need to pray for a spiritual revival right now in God's church. We need to pray for a spiritual revival um, in our country. So uh, pray for God to use us to minister to confused and hurting people around us, leading them to a person, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Kaboom! You know, when all else fails, you preach on prayer. <laughs> when all else fails. So don't let the title of this message confuse you, okay? Yes, the title is The Future Glorious State of Christ Church, but it's really on prayer. Prayer that leads to revival, literally, is the, is the correct title for this, for this message. And I have to thank my, pa my assistant pastor here, uh, uh, you know, for giving us that giving us that word of confirmation. So everything that you owed me from seminary, you paid back Wednesday night. I did all of his homework and his tests in seminary, just so you know. <laughs> so, you paid back. You paid back this week. So anyways, 
Let me pray. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, this is a very humble attempt to uh, promote the need, the necessity of prayer right now throughout our church, throughout our churches, throughout our world for extraordinary prayer. And so we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd make these words clear, that you'd communicate the mystery of Christ clearly, clearly, as our brothers and sisters are in chains all over the world this morning. So help us to be faithful to proclaim the mystery of Christ and proclaim it clearly as we ought to proclaim it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this past week, again, I'm not going to belabor the, 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 the issue that Pastor Mark uh, brought up at the beginning of this service, uh, but we don't want anybody to accuse us of being tone deaf uh, this morning. It's extremely difficult Sunday morning for, for every preacher in America, I would say, because you've got to exegete the text correctly. You also have to correctly interpret the cultural times in which we live. So we saw another senseless shooting uh, in Kenosha, as Pastor Mark said, which sparked another round of violent protests that led to a 17-year-old teenager from Antioch, Illinois, who brought in a semi-automatic rifle. I have no idea what's he doing with a semi-automatic rifle, but he brought it to the protest uh, in uh, Kenosha and, and basically shot at three people in, in a group and ended up killing two. This morning, uh, you know, when I woke up, I read in the, in the Chicago papers that we had two police officers who were shot in Garfield Park early morning hours this morning. So earlier this month, the Wall Street Journal ran this headline, Homicide Spike Hits Most U.S. Cities. Thus far in the year 2020, the crime statistics in the 50 largest U.S. cities find that reported homicides are up 24% just so far this year. That's the total right now of reported homicides in the 50 largest cities, get this, at 3612, 3,612 reported homicides in the 50 largest U.S. cities this year. Yes, now more than ever, we need to continue to pray for a great awakening in our country and our world. Pray that God's Spirit would fall afresh on us and for God to soften people's hearts so that they might turn back to Him. Now, at the most basic worldview level, what we're seeing on the streets of America today, the streets of American cities from Kenosha to Portland to Seattle, is a basic distinction between two different worldviews on human dignity and human nature. It is important that you understand worldviews, because that's the only way you as a Christian, as a child of God, will be able to talk to somebody out in the street and be able to correctly interpret the times. On one side of the spectrum are those who believe that human beings are basically good, that any evil that happens in our human experience or the behavior, you know, of human action is probably because a bad society has somehow warped the morality or the behavior of basically good people. 
Now that's the Kool-Aid, I call it. That's the humanistic worldview that was espoused by the 18th century French philosopher Rousseau. Biblical Christianity, on the other hand, says that there is a goodness. Yes, there's a goodness in the sense that every single human being is made in God's image, but there's also a very essential badness. And that original sin is a real deal. Sin is the great enemy. Sin is the reality. Okay? Merely, all you have to do is just look at the headlines. Look at the news headlines. It reminds you of the nature of the world that we currently live in. We can account for humanity's goodness and depravity by saying that man, humans, made good, chose to rebel against God, and brought evil upon ourselves. While we're created in the image of God, our ability to reflect that image has been defaced because all aspects of who we are have been infected by sin. So evil is a perversion of the good, but it does not define human beings' essence. The Bible is clear that something bad happened to make us the way we are. Something bad happened to make a cop shoot somebody seven times in the back. Something something bad happened to make a 17-year-old kid just shoot into a crowd. Okay? The fact that crimes occur at all is testimony that something has gone horribly wrong in what God originally created as good. Did he not say after this sixth day that it was very good? Did he not say that? It was very good. People were not created sinful. Remember, it was very good, God said. We are made in the image of God or the imago Dei. Well, that image, though corrupted at the fall, is not lost. As John Calvin puts it, the depravity and wickedness, whether of man or of the devil, and the sins resulting from it being not from nature, but from the corruption of nature. Sin is not original to creation because it entered the world after creation. If, if we had just stopped the world, stopped time at the end of Genesis 2, it would have been heaven. <laughs> but we had to get to Genesis 3. So because of sin that happened in Genesis 3, violence and death and other horrors are all consequences and actions that followed Adam's and Eve's rebellion in the garden. Sin in its original sense. Sin is original in the sense that there was a time when it did not exist, Genesis 1 and 2. And now that it does, sin has spread to all people. Sin had a definite beginning and has a definite scope. Sin leads, leads to broken relationships, broken justice systems, broken educational systems, broken housing systems, and further divides people from one another and from God, our Creator. And the outward signs of broken relationships are the fences and the walls we build around our homes and communities and nations to keep people out. I said it. I just said it. Simply, we build walls because we're fearful and we don't trust each other. 
All of us have a propensity to moral deficiency. We all tend at some level to live beneath our own moral aspirations, much less trying to live up to God's high aspirations for us. If we're sinners, and if our sin is offensive to a holy God, and if our sin has affected totally, then we can do nothing to repair the damage. We're left to God's mercy and are hopeless without His grace. We're like those cadavers that lie on the operating room table. We can't do squat. The scriptures say unequivocally that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. If we're dead, then we can do nothing to enliven ourselves, just as those who are physically dead cannot respond to physical stimuli. So to those who are spiritually dead, they cannot respond to spiritual stimuli. Paul makes it clear that salvation is not conditioned by anything that we can do, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. God is no man's debtor. He owes us nothing. His actions are not conditioned by our human behavior. His very kindness leads us to repent from our sins and receive His grace through the finished work of Christ on the cross. The gospel really is good news because by the gospel we are forgiven of our sins whatever our level of offense is towards God and towards others. Whether we are the ones who propagate injustice by our own words, by our own unjust actions, or we're the ones suffering mistreatment at the hands of other people. We all stand equal at the foot of the cross. Others, others who suppress the, the truth of God in their unrighteousness or refuse His grace will miss out on the loving and the kindness of God, and they will miss out on the glory that is to come. And the glory that is to come is actually the, the message. All of that was not the message. <laughs> okay? So that's, that's the social justice part of me. I just want to unload that, and I better get back to my message before I get in trouble with the Lord. All right? So here's the main message. It's in Zechariah chapter 8, 20 to 23. If we can put the scriptures up, Zechariah 8, 20 to 23, verse 20. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Verse 22, many peoples and strong nations shall keep to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Zechariah 8, 20-23. In the interest of transparency. This sermon has six points. All six of them I stole from Jonathan Edwards. 
okay, in the interest of transparency. When all else fails, you draw back to the greats. And R.C. Sproul says there are only four theologians worth talking about in world history. Calvin, Luther, Jonathan Edwards, St. Augustine, in that order. Extraordinary. This is his sermon from Zechariah. And all I'm doing is I'm painting the context and I'll add the conclusion and add in a couple of quotes from C.S. Lewis, of course. But, uh, you know, the, the, the meat of the, this sermon is from, uh, is from a message that Jonathan Edwards preached in, in about 1744. So, in this chapter, Zechariah prophesies of the future glorious advancement of the church. And it's evident that there's more intended was ever fulfilled in the Jewish nation during the Old Testament times. Here are plain prophecies describing things that were never fulfilled before the coming of the Messiah, particularly what is said in the two last verses in the chapter where Zechariah speaks of the many people and strong nations worshiping and seeking the true God and of so great an addition of non-Jews, non-Jews to the church, that the majority of visible worshipers consisted of non-Jews, outnumbering the, the Jews, ten to one. Nothing ever happened from the time of Zechariah to the coming of Christ to fulfill this prophecy. Its fulfillment can only be in the calling of the non-Jews during and following the times of the apostles, or in the future, glorious enlargement of God's church in the end times that is so often foretold by these Old Testament prophets, particularly by Zechariah. It is most likely that the Spirit of God speaks here of the greatest revival and the most glorious advancement of the church on earth and the blessings of which will benefit the Jewish nation. This book of Zechariah is only second to Isaiah in the number of references about the Messiah. Zechariah predicted the Messiah's triumphal entry into Jerusalem in chapter 9, verse 9, fulfilled in Matthew 21, 5. He predicts the Messiah's betrayal for 30 pieces of silver fulfilled in Matthew 26 and 27. He predicts the, desert, the desertion of Jesus' own followers in chapter 13, 7, fulfilled in Matthew 26, 31. He predicted that the Messiah would be pierced, fulfilled in John 19, 37. And Christ's glorious return on the Mount of Olives, he predicts in chapter 14, verse 4, fulfilled in Acts 1, verses 9 and 11. The book of Zechariah is quoted from or alluded to in the New Testament 71 times. You don't even need the book of Revelation to, to write about the end times and eschatology. All you have to do is go to the book of Zechariah and you get a split image. If you, if you put Zechariah and Ezekiel together, you get a split image of Revelation. Seriously. Who was Zechariah? He was one of the post-exile prophets during the time shortly after Persia had conquered the Babylonian Empire. And the Persian king Cyrus allowed about 50,000 Jews to return to Israel in 538 B.C. The city of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple absolute, 
in ruins. It's like Kenosha right now. Ruins from the Babylonian invasion in 586 B.C. Within a year after returning from Babylon, the people had laid the foundation for the new temple. Their enthusiasm early on waned, though. It had led to disillusionment as they experienced opposition from all their neighbors, followed by the indifference among their own Jewish community. So nearly 20 years after the Jewish exiles returned to their homeland, they abandoned. They abandoned the work of rebuilding the Jewish temple. So God, why, why is this rebuilding of the, uh, of the temple, you know, important? Because the presence of God is going to return there. That's why. And God sent the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to turn the people back to the Lord to the task that they needed to complete which was to finish rebuilding of the temple. Haggai's primary purpose was to rebuild the temple. His preaching has a tone of rebuke. He rebuked the people's apathy and indifference, their sin, their lack of trust in God. He was used to start the revival, while Zechariah was used to keep it going strong with a more positive emphasis. He called the people back to repentance and reassured them regarding future blessings. Zechariah sought to encourage the people to build the temple in view of the promise that someday, someday the Messiah would come to inhabit that temple. The people were not just building a building for the present. They were building a future hope of the Messiah in mind, okay? He encouraged the people, still downtrodden by these powers, in Assyria, and Babylon, and Persia, with the reality that the Lord remembers his covenant promises to them, that he would restore and bless them. Hence, his name, Zechariah's name means the Lord remembers. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. I'm reading from uh, verses 2 to 8 now in uh, Zechariah. Chapter 1, the Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. See, Zechariah was still young when he returned with his father from the Babylonian exile, which had come as a consequence of God's wrath on the Israelites' forefathers because they rejected the prophetic message. That's in verse 2. The main thrust of this introduction is to call his own generation to repentance. Verses 3 and 4. He cites the consequences of their fathers who refused to obey the prophet's words. In verses 5 to 6, the people's ancestors responded to God in repentance. 
Those ancestors had come to the point of agreeing that God had dealt with them according to their evil ways and deeds. That's what repentance means, by the way, that we agree with God, that we have sinned against Him, we've sinned against His, you know, fellow creatures. When God had justly judged them, and they finally realized that their ways were wrong, they were on the way to restoration. Although they were now back in their homeland, life was still hard in Judah as taxes were high under King Darius, and their efforts to rebuild the temple ran into powerful opposition, so much so that Zechariah eventually paid for it with his own life. But that's a topic for another sermon. Zechariah addressed the discouragement of the Israelites directly by reminding them that God's angels were watching over everything and that when the time was right, God would act to reorder the universe. That's about as comforting of the words that I could possibly give you this morning. Despite what you're seeing played out, in the streets of America, from Kenosha to Portland, which one more person was killed overnight. I didn't even mention that earlier. One person was killed overnight in Portland. Despite what you're seeing, God's angels are watching everything even now, and that when the time is right, God would act to reorder the universe. Justice will come. Indeed, there's great agreement between Zechariah's prophecies and those of Isaiah regarding the churches, our latter-day glory. Listen to these words in Isaiah 60, verses 2 to 4. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Without doubt, this entire chapter foretells the most glorious state of God's church on earth, as does three other chapters in Isaiah. You can read it on your own time, Isaiah 66, 8, Micah 4, 1 to 3, Isaiah 2, 1 to 4. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge many peoples and will dispute, settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. May his kingdom come and his will be done. Nothing, however, nothing whatsoever has happened to fulfill these prophecies. Moreover, since the prophecy in our main text, in chapter 8, verses 20 to 23, agrees with those of Isaiah's and Micah's, there is reason to think that they address the same time periods, okay? There's remarkable agreement in the description here given throughout chapter 8 with the representations of those times elsewhere in Isaiah and Micah. Though the prophet is at times referring to the future smiles of heaven on the Jewish nation, the Spirit of God doubtless, doubtless he refers to events far greater than these 
of which these are but faint resemblances. He's looking far into the future, past the present. The Jews had just returned from the Babylonian captivity and other countries. They resettled in Canaan where they were experiencing great increase in both numbers and wealth. We find it common in the prophecies of the Old Testament that when the prophets are speaking of the favors and the blessings of God on the Jews attending or following their return from the Babylonian captivity, the Spirit of God takes the opportunity from there to speak of the incomparable greater glory, the incomparable greater blessings on the church and God's people that will attend and follow her deliverance from the spiritual Babylon of which those were a type. Verse 7 and 8 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Zechariah in the 8th chapter speaks of God bringing his people again from the east and the west to Jerusalem, multitudes of all nations taking hold of the skirts of the Jews. Although this prophecy literally refers to the Jews returning from Babylon, its fulfillment cannot be seen there, for no such thing spoken of here attended their return. Therefore, it has to refer to the great calling and the gathering of Jews into the fold of Christ and to them receiving the blessings of his kingdom after the fall of the Antichrist. You know, this is for a future time. So now we get to the thrust of the message. In Zechariah 8, 20 to 22, we have an account of how this future advancement of the church will occur. It would come to fruition as multitudes from different towns and nations and peoples resolve to unite in extraordinary prayer, seeking God until He manifests Himself and gives us the fruits of His presence. Okay? We may observe several things. These are, these are the biblical examples from Zechariah that Jonathan Edwards gives as evidence, evidence of the movement of God towards great revival. First, the necessity of prayer. Well, some suppose that prayer includes the whole worship of God and that prayer is a part of worship during the days of the gospel when the sacrifices are abolished. Therefore, this, this can be understood as a prophecy of great revival of religion with true worship of God among His people, repentance from idolatry, and growth of the church. However, it seems reasonable to Edwards that, to suppose that something even more special is intended regarding prayer, given that prayer is not only repeatedly mentioned here, but that this prophecy parallels many other prophecies that speaks of an extraordinary spirit of prayer preceding that glorious day of revival and the advancement of the church's peace and prosperity. It parallels what the prophet later speaks of, the pouring out of a spirit of grace and supplications as that which introduces a great religious revival. He says that in Zechariah 12.10. And when I say the few of you who are praying, who are faithfully praying between Tuesday and Friday, that something great is going to happen. Even if we, 
you know, yes, we've done it since March, and it may continue for one year, two years. I don't know. I don't know how long this pandemic, I don't know how long the twin pandemic will last, but as long as it lasts, we will continue to pray, right? In October of 1744, in the heart of the Great Awakening, a group of Scottish pastors were praying. And you know how long they prayed? Nightly prayer meetings, just like us. Two years they prayed. Scottish pastors prayed two years. They got together and they prayed two years. They sent the same letter to 500 pastors in the colonies. Those pastors started, those church leaders started praying in the colonies, including Jonathan Edwards, Edwards' own congregation in Northampton. That was happening in the heart of the Great Awakening, and I have no, no doubt that it led to the Second Great Awakening in the 1800s, okay? That's a, as a direct result. The outpouring of his Holy Spirit happened as a direct result of people faithfully praying. Second, second biblical example. The good which shall be brought by prayer is God himself. The scripture says, they shall go to pray before the Lord to seek the Lord of hosts. The good that they seek for is the Lord of hosts himself. If seeking God means no more than seeking the favor or mercy of God, then praying before the Lord and seeking the Lord of hosts must be looked upon as synonymous. However, seeking the Lord is commonly used to mean something far more than just seeking after something from God. Surely it implies that God himself is what is desired. God himself is what we are seeking. And I love what Stuart McAllister said in his book on asking. He said that our praying is never just a matter of needing to know something or of informing God as if he needed informing or being informed by God. It is more about needing to be known an innate human need to be known by someone and being formed and transformed by the praying and the answering of intimate communication. What we mostly desire, what we in fact receive, is not merely what we need, but who we need. Not merely the result of, but the relationship. Not merely the answer, but the answer himself. All praying is answered with the gift of God himself in the very act of praying. There's no wait time for God in prayer. There's no wait time. We don't have to get in line. Even if our praying, get this, even if our praying does not seem to be answered immediately or in our own terms or immediate terms, our spirits are immediately satisfied when we rush into the throne room of grace. C.S. Lewis, in more simple, in simple manner, he puts it this way to summarize our understanding of prayer, how a Christian is drawn into the life of the triune Godhead. In our ordinary lives, the promptings of God are experienced to ask of God. Lewis said this, God is the thing to which he is praying. He is the goal 
which we're trying to reach. God is also the thing inside them which is pushing them on, the motive power for prayer. God is also the road or the bridge along which they are pushed to that goal so that the whole threefold life of the three personal triune God is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary Christian is saying their prayers. Our ordinary praying is always extraordinary given its engagement with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with God Himself being the answer to all that we need. Thus, the psalmist desired God. He thirsted after them and sought after them. Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where no water is to see your power and your glory. So as I've seen you in the sanctuary, my soul follows hard after you. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon earth I desire besides you. Your heart shall live who seeks God. This be the true sense of this phrase, seeking the Lord of hosts, then we must understand that God who withdrew himself, as it were, hid himself, would return to his church, give us the fruits of his presence and communion with his people, which he so often promised in the Old Testament and for which his church had so long waited In short, it seems reasonable to understand the phrase, seeking the Lord of hosts means not merely praying to God, but seeking the promised restoration of His people. That's what seeking God, searching for Him means. And God giving this promised revival and restoration is called being found of them. And you can read some of that fulfillment in Jeremiah 29, 10-14. So the prophets occasionally represent God as being withdrawn, hiding himself in Isaiah 45, 15, and 57, 17. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. I hid my face and was angry. The prophets then go on to represent God's people seeking him, searching and waiting for and calling after him. When God answers their prayers, restores and advances his people according to his promises, then he is said to come and say, here am I, and to show himself, and they are said to find him and see him plainly. Isaiah 58, 9 says, then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right in Isaiah 45, 17, and 19. Number three, we may observe who it is that will be united in seeking the Lord. The inhabitants of many cities, yes, many people in strong nations, many people from all over the world will unite to seek the Lord. From this prophecy, it seems reasonable to assume that this will be fulfilled in the following manner. Here's the manner for revival, guys. Listen. First, God's people will be given a spirit of prayer, inspiring 
them to come together and pray in an extraordinary manner that he would help his church, that he would show mercy in humankind in general. He would pour out his spirit, revive his work, and advance his kingdom in the world as he promised. That's the great revival that is coming. Such prayer would gradually spread and increase all the more, ushering in a revival of spirituality and religion. This would be characterized by greater worship, greater service of God among believers. And I'll say this, during the, past, uh, during the pandemic, we are doing more with the Chicago Police Department and out there in the streets than we have. So we're going to see greater service, greater worship, greater need for God. They'll be led to join with God's people in that extraordinary seeking and serving of God which they see around them. In this way, the revival will grow until the awakening reaches entire people groups, whole nations, and those in the highest positions of power. They will hear. The church will grow to be ten times larger than it was before. All of these seats will be filled. Indeed, at length, all the nations of the world will be converted to God. Thus, ten men out of all languages and nations will take hold of the skirt of a Jew, saying, we will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Thus, Psalm 65, 2 will be fulfilled. Oh, you who hears prayers, unto you will all flesh come. Number four, we may also observe the manner of their unity in prayer. It is a visible and voluntary union that was first proposed by some of God's people with others readily joining in over time. Those who live in one city will declare to those of another city, let us go. Can you imagine? A prayer group in the U.S. and the prayer group in a village somewhere in Ratnakiri saying, together, let us go to our knees in prayer. Many of those who hear their declaration will not only join with them, but also will make the call for the unity in prayer known to still others. As a result, the movement will grow, prevail, and spread among God's people. Number five, we can observe the manner in which they agree to pray. Let us go speedily to pray. Or it says in the margin, let us go continually. It's progressive. It's active verbs. Literally translated, this means let us go in going. Let us continually go. The Hebrew language often doubles words for emphasis, like holy of holies signifies that which is most holy. Such doubling of words denotes the certainty. It is certain to happen. For example, when God said to Abraham, in multiplying, I will multiply your seed. God implies that he would certainly multiply his seed, multiply it exceedingly. Number six, last point. Finally, this prophecy gives us a picture of this union in prayer being an inviting and happy thing. It is not drudgery. It is not burdensome. It is a happy thing. We start sensing God's pleasure, the results to prove tremendously successful. 
From the whole of this prophecy, we may infer that it, was, it is well-pleasing to God and for many people in different parts of the world to voluntarily come into a visible union to pray in an extraordinary way for those great outpourings of the Holy Spirit which shall advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ that God has so often promised shall be in the latter ages of the world. So to summarize, Zechariah was encouraging the Jews to build and rebuild the physical Jewish temple. Then his focus shifted to call for them to repent from their sins, return to God, purify their motives, and be holy spiritual temples which God would dwell through his spirit. And when that happens, when that happens, it will usher in a triumphant return of the King of Kings to fulfill God's purposes and restore God's people who are now joined by all the people groups for salvation belongs to the Lord. So this chapter, in this chapter 8 of Zechariah, God shows forth His grace by renewing His presence with His people. He reaffirms His purposes to bless the nations, to bless the people groups through them. We see a complete transformation in Jerusalem. God returns to Zion, dwells in the midst of His people. In the days ahead, Jerusalem will become the faithful city and Zion would again be the holy mountain. The Lord promises to thoroughly save His people from the east and the west and everywhere in between. And when the Lord returns to Jerusalem, all His people will live together in faithfulness, righteousness, and justice. Imagine that. The promise that they shall be My people, I will be their God recalls the promises in Jeremiah 31, 33. Finally, in verses 20 to 23 of chapter 8, the Abrahamic blessing will extend beyond Jerusalem to include non-Jews. That's us, you and me. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the favor of the Lord. Nations of every tongue who recognize God with His people, they shall come to Jerusalem. They shall seek the Lord this prophecy found its fulfillment on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Then we read this climax in Zechariah 9, 9-10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a donkey. That, you know, was fulfilled on Palm Sunday. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Yet for an appointed time, that will be fulfilled. I'll close with this, and I, I want to go back to the pandemic and the fear that is pervasive in, in our country right now. And I'll read this, I'll, I'll close with this quote from C.S. Lewis. He, he delivered this, this message, this brief message, uh, on October 22, 1939, near the beginning of World War II. He preached this message at Oxford. And Lewis, I, I only found this out last night, he was counseling the chaplains of the British Royal Air Force who ministered to the men who were risking their lives for the motherland. The sermon 
was later published under the title Learning in Wartime, and he addresses fear head on. And, and, and just close your eyes and, and envision these words as applying today because we are very much in fear, operating in fear, and we're operating in wartime against an invisible enemy. He says the third enemy is fear. War threatens us with death and pain. No man, and especially no Christian re who remembers Gethsemane, need try to attain a stoic indifference about these things. But we can guard against the illusions of the imagination. We think of the streets of Poland and contrast the deaths there suffered with an abstraction called life. But there's no question of death or life for any of us. Only a question of this death or of that death, of a machine gun bullet. You can say a semi-automatic rifle bullet or of a cancer 40 years later. What does war, what does war do to death? It certainly does not make it more frequent, okay? Death does not happen more frequently in war. A hundred percent of us die and the percentage cannot be increased one iota. It puts several deaths earlier, but I hardly suppose that that is what we fear, certainly when the moment comes and will make little difference how many years we have behind us. Does it increase our chance of a painful death? I doubt it. As far as I can find out, what we call natural death is usually preceded by suffering, and the battlefield is one of the very few places where one has a reasonable prospect of dying with no pain at all. Does it decrease, does death decrease our chance of dying at peace with God? I cannot believe it does. If active service does not persuade a man to prepare for death, what conceivable circumstance would? Yet war does something to death. War reminds us, it forces us to remember it, to remember death. The only reason why the cancer at 60 or the paralysis at 75 do not bother us is that we forget them. War makes death real to us, and that would have been regarded as one of its blessings by most of the great Christians of the past. They thought it good for us to be always aware of our own mortality. I'm inclined to think they were right. All the animal life in us, all the schemes of happiness that centered in this world were always doomed to a final frustration. In ordinary times, only a wise man can realize it. Now the stupidest of us know. We see in unmistakably the sort of universe in which we've all along been living, and we must come to terms with it. If we had foolish, unchristian hopes about human culture, they are now shattered. If we thought we were building up a heaven on earth, if we looked for something that would turn the present world from a place of pilgrimage into a permanent city, satisfying the soul of man, we are disillusioned and not a moment too soon. But if we thought that for some souls and at some time the life of learning humbly offered to God was in its own small way one of the appointed approaches to the divine reality and the divine beauty which we hope to enjoy hereafter, we can think so still. 
While war forces people to remember death and see the nature of the world we live in, we are wise if we come to terms with these things now. As Christians living in the hope of the resurrection, let us remember the brevity of life and be thankful to God for each day he gives us, seeking to live fruitful lives that are pleasing to him. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that in these quiet moments, Lord, you would teach us, teach us to remember our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom, Lord. Lord, we see how broken we are in all aspects. Our relationship is broken with you. Our relationship is broken with our work. Our relationship with one another is broken. And our relationship with ourselves is broken. We are in desperate need of you. And so we come before you today. And we pray that you would heal. You would restore. You would reconcile and you would reorder all things through the finished work of your son Jesus Christ when he hung between two thieves and he shed his blood for us and when you raised him from the dead you gave us hope and we are people of hope today and so Lord as we sing this song to close us out Lord we pray Lord Jesus come Lord Jesus, come. We look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now we see but through a mist darkly. Soon we shall see face to face. Amen? Come on, let's sing this soon and very soon. Soon and very soon, soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Yes, we are. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see no more crying now. No, no more crying there. We are going to see the king. No more crying. No, no more crying there. Yes, we, we are going to see the king. Yes, now no more crying there. We are going to see the king. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We're going to see the king. No more dying, no more dying there. We are going to see the king. No more dying, no more dying there. We are going to see the king. No more dying there. We are going to see the king. Hallelujah.
Hallelujah, hallelujah. We're going to see the King. Oh, soon and very soon. Soon and very soon. We are going to see the King. We're going to see him one day. Soon and very soon. We are going to see the King. Yes, soon and very soon. We are going to see the King. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see the King. Hallelujah, 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 we're going to see the King. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah.